In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever had a test that you didn't know it was a test until you were, until it was over? Now, I know we've all walked into a classroom at some point, and the teachers said those famous words, pop quiz, right? And I think most of us have had that, that nightmarish experience of walking into a test that you'd forgotten about, and you're not quite prepared for. Well, let me give you an example of a test you didn't know was a test. There are stories in HR circles about companies that will uh, tell a somebody coming in for an interview. They'll have the receptionist tell them, we're running a few minutes behind, but don't worry. They'll be with you as soon as they can and have them sit in the lobby. And part of the test is to see how they treat the receptionist when she tells them that and when they have to wait. Because they want to see if that person, who of course is going to treat the interviewer, is going to well, how they treat the people that are going to be below them, right? If you come in there and you get frustrated and yell at the receptionist, you're not going to get the job. Hold on to that for just a moment. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now the child of promise is born, right? Last week we read about the celebrations that took place at his weaning. And now, a few years later, God is calling out again to Abraham. This time, he wants to test them. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Now, this story is a difficult one to explain. And it's a difficult one to under for us to understand fully because we know how the story ends, Right? We know, because we've heard this story since we were in Sunday school, Isaac's going to be okay. We also know, because we read in, this, in the New Testament, that because of what Jesus has done on the cross and with his resurrection, physically sacrificing any living thing is kind of pointless. But you have to remember, historically, Abraham was from Ur. Archaeologists have found what they like to call death pits in Ur. Places where when the king of Ur and the queen of Ur Another important people, when they died, they'd sacrifice their servants so they could be with them in the afterlife and serve them there. We hear similar things out of Egypt, someplace we know Abraham visited. It's hard for us to imagine now, but this was the reality Abraham was living in. And in spite of that, or because of that, who knows, Abraham went and obeyed. For all of their occasions of laughter, Abraham and Sarah's impatience. In the end, Abraham is always faithful to do what God tells him to do, even when he doesn't understand it. So they go with what I can only imagine is trepidation. He gets together everything he needs, gets Isaac and a couple of his servants to go with him, and they start marching towards the mountain. For three days they travel, and when they get close enough, Abraham stops the party, leaves the men and the animals behind, and off he and Isaac go. Isaac's carrying all the wood, and Abraham's carrying everything else. And we don't know exactly how old Isaac is here. Old enough to carry all the wood, and also old enough to ask a really simple question that I'm sure was on his mind. Dad, we've got the wood, we've got the knife and the fire, but where's the lamb? 
Abraham can respond with is, the Lord will provide. They build the altar. Abraham ties his son up and places him on top. And then he reaches for the knife. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he stopped from going through with it. The angel tells him not to lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God since you withheld not even your son, your only son, from me. The Lord provided a ram that just happened to be nearby where the sacrifice was going to take place. Just like there happened to be a well in the middle of the desert right by where Hagar and Ishmael stopped the week before, right? God's funny that way. And Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day we call it, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. David writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now there's a tradition that says that David wrote this psalm during his son Absalom's rebellion. I read an article this week in Christianity Today. I flipped it open. They had an article in there about David. And in it they called David both a hero and a cautionary tale. Why a hero and a cautionary tale? When we think of David, we tend to think of the hero part of it, right? David and Goliath. David recovers the Ark of the Covenant and brings it back to Jerusalem. David being resolute in all the opportunities he had to kill Saul and not just seizing power. A hero. But once he became the king, he sometimes acts the way other kings do. He gives in to his own desires. He doesn't always follow the Lord. I'm sure he's thinking, well, God, if other kings do it, why not me? But with that attitude comes the reality God sometimes told him he would be judged, not by some outside force, but by allowing the consequences of his actions to play out without God stopping them. David writes, How long shall I have perplexity in my mind and grief in my heart day after day? How long will my enemy triumph over me? We're here at one of the darkest points of his long rule. One of his sons has decided the old man's got to go. He leads an army against him. And David, the mighty warrior, this time he and his army can't stand, so they flee. In this dark time, he cries out to God, asking God why he's losing. How long will this go on? Here's the thing, though. God had already told him some time before that, that this was going to come. That there was going to be problems, and God was going to let his sin and the results of his sin play out. David knows this, but he's still frustrated. And I also know that we read a passage that frustrate us. We read about the mistakes the great heroes of the faith make. Reading about how society has always had times when things were bad or things looked bad. We look at the lostness of humanity and the brokenness of the world. Like David, all we can do some days is cry out, how long? And it frustrates us. We're frustrated with ourselves. We're frustrated with society. We're frustrated with those who come before us in the faith. Sometimes we even almost feel depressed. But remember what David said. But I put my trust in your mercy. My heart is joyful because of your saving help. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt with me richly. I'll praise the name of the Lord Most High. Before one thing changed, David knew where to turn to when he was in trouble. He knew that the Lord's mercy is great. David, even when things around him were going wrong, knowing that they're of his own making, knows that God's mercy is new every morning. 
that even when he's in the middle of the mess, that God loves him, that God will save him. Paul writes, Therefore do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Now the lesson that we learn from David and from all the other times in Scripture where God shows us all his chosen people did, warts and all, is that God will be there with us when we call out. We see in the New Testament the change that Christ brings into our lives. The change we've been talking about over the last few weeks where sin no longer has to have dominion over us. We've changed kingdoms and become adopted into a new family. So we no longer have to live and follow the old kingdom's rules. Paul says that we're free to present our members to God. Paul has another question this week. He asks, what then? Should we sin because we're not under Moses' law but under grace? By no means. Last week Paul answered that question, hey, if we get more grace in the world with more sin, why don't we sin more so there's more grace, right? It's a win-win proposition. What was Paul's response to that? God forbid, or by no means. Today he's been talking to the Roman church where we have Christians from a variety of backgrounds trying to live with each other in love. He's reminding them that just because we were born to the right parents or into the great lineage of faith or for any other thing, we are not better than any other believer. Paul's also reminding them that grace is not a license to do whatever they want. Remember that Jesus said the whole of the law was summed up in this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. The new commandment that Jesus gives us on Monday, Thursday was that you love one another just as I have loved you. You should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Now let's be honest, in many ways that's a harder rule to live by than the many, many rules of the law of Moses. Loving our neighbors, ooh, that can be tricky. Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The world that we're born into, that Abraham, David, and Paul were born into, in that kingdom all our works lead to one place. But thanks to Jesus Christ, we've been given a free gift and brought into the kingdom of God, where the end of all things is eternal life. Jesus said, whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Now Jesus is finishing, finishing his explanation to the apostles about what he's called them to go out and do. Now if you remember two weekends ago, we, we heard and read that Jesus looked out and saw the people. And he saw the work that needed to be done. And he called the apostles to get together and gave them the challenge of going out and finding God's people who've wandered away like lost sheep. And he tells them, go out and tell them the kingdom of God is here. And bring them healing and deliverance. He says, whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. Jesus promises that when we show hospitality, we're going to be blessed. He starts with people who would impress the apostles, right? If you welcome an apostle, if you welcome Moses or Elijah or Isaiah, you receive a reward like they did. And listen, if you find someone righteous and you receive them, someone like Abraham or David, you'll get their reward. 
promise goes so much beyond just rewards for being hospitable to someone who's already important. He says this, Whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. What reward is Jesus talking about here? In Matthew's Gospel, the earthly rewards for the prophets, he said, are things like rejection and persecution. Their rewards are all in heaven. In a few chapters, Jesus is going to say that some people that think they know him don't really know him. And it's not going to be over a matter of theology. It's not going to be over a matter of holiness. Jesus says this, I was hungry and you did not give me anything to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. You'll ask him, Lord, when? We didn't see you getting any of those things. We would have helped if it was you. What was Jesus' response? Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Whatever you do for the least of them, giving him a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, he says you're doing for me. Like the prophets in this story, the rewards are being with God. Keep in mind as we deal with others in this broken world that God is offering them the same gift he offered to us. If we want to see the world change, it will not be through politics. And I submit it will not be writing perfect laws. There are no perfect laws. If there was a perfect law, men would read it, and women would read it, and we'd find loopholes. Because we're really good at that. Instead, what's going to change the world is love. And the love that Jesus can bring and the change that Jesus brings when people get to know him. Because it's through him and his free gift that the world is changed.